0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates. And I'm Allison Camerota. This is CNN Tonight. Brittany Greiner is on her way home tonight, flying halfway around the world from Moscow to San Antonio. You're looking live at the airport where she is expected to arrive very soon. The Olympic gold medalist and WNBA star was released early this morning from Russian detention in exchange for a Russian arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death. But the prisoner swap left American Paul Whelan behind in Russia, where he's been detained for nearly four years.
2: And in just a moment, I'll actually talk to the White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. I'll ask her about those who say the negotiations failed because Paul Whelan was left behind and whether expanded anti-LGBTQ laws in Russia added to concern over Brittany Griner's detention. Also, first
1: on CNN, four high-profile Trump allies could face criminal referrals from the January 6th committee. So we'll tell you who they are
2: and what that would mean. Lots to talk about tonight for sure, but the big news is the release of Brittany Griner after 294 days of wrongful detention in Russia. Joining me now, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. Corinne, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for taking the time after a very long day to join us this evening. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Laura, for for having me on today. You're right, it's been a very long day, but I'm happy to be here with you. I mean, especially about a day like today, most people woke up to the news that Brittany Griner had been freed and there was a range of emotion. There was concerns, obviously, for the families of those who have not had that success diplomatically, but there's also elation for those who have been waiting for this day, not the least of which are the loved ones of BG, as she is known. I wonder what you say, Corinne, to, after a day of hearing the reactions, what do you say to those that this may have been perceived as a failed negotiation? Because it did not include Paul Whalen? So let me just
3: first say, uh, Laura, that these, uh, you know, these decisions that the president make uh, day in and day, not, day out in this particular decision is not an easy one. He does not make these decisions lightly. He believed there was an opportunity to bring Brittany Griner home, and he took that opportunity. And so that is something that he wants American people to understand. Look, the options that we were given was either we bring one American home, which is Brittany Griner, or we bring none. And so the president took uh, that, made that decision to bring home Brittany Griner. Look, here's the thing, the president has promised since the beginning of his administration that he would do everything that he can to bring American citizens who are being wrongfully detained abroad, and he has kept that promise. And he's brought home, as we saw back in April, Trevor Reed, today Brittany Griner, and he understands, he actually said this this morning when he spoke to the American people, with Sherelle by his side and the vice president by his side, he said uh, that he understands at this moment that today is incredibly difficult uh, for the Whelan family. And he is going to keep his promise, he's going to do everything that he can to bring Paul home to secure his release as well. The one last piece I want to say is that it was the last within the last several weeks we realized that Russia was willing to do a a, a to, to secure to negotiate uh, for uh, Brittany's release, but they were not willing to do that for Paul. They were not negotiating in good faith, and they had categorized call, uh, Paul very differently. They have falsely, illegitimately charged him uh, with. Uh, you know with with uh, charges that uh, we believe were false mm-hmm. and so because of that they were not willing to uh, negotiate for him at this time but again we're still in conversation. we are going to do everything that we can to bring Paul home and that is a promise that the president has made
2: well certainly the family of Paul Whelan and others are hoping for that very result. I do wonder. You know, the issue you described, the idea of what it takes to have a good faith negotiation and really the bargaining power comes down oftentimes, as you can imagine, to leverage. And many people are wondering, there's new reporting about what you're talking about, the idea of trying to do all that you can to bring him and others home. What might be the process now in terms of a shift in the leverage? The idea that Victor Boot has now been in that prisoner exchange. I know that John Kirby spoke about boot never being the bargaining chip, but I wonder what leverage the United States has to try to compel that good-faith bargaining and good-faith negotiation by Russia.
3: And I understand that's a very good question to ask, but as you can imagine, we have to be really careful here Mm. uh, because we are currently continuing uh, trying to have those negotiations, continuing to trying uh, to secure uh, Paul's uh, safe return. So don't want to uh, lay that out or any conversations that uh, that are happening uh, as it relates to Paul. But I can say this. I just mentioned Trevor Reed, that the president was able uh, to get released back in April. There's been about a dozen more from different countries uh, of Americans who were wrongfully detained held hostage abroad in his administration that he has been able uh, to get released so this is a priority for the president this is a priority and he wants to, people to know he wants the American people to know this is an imperative mm. for him to bring Americans home who are wrongfully uh, detained can't get into uh, negotiations and negotiating in public uh, but again we have seen uh, the, the the what the president has been able to do his administration has been able to do uh, in successes in getting uh, folks released. Uh, but again, not going to get into details on this.
2: I understand the diplomatic prudence completely, Karine. I'm glad that you were willing to even address it. I do want to focus on the person who was released today, and that is Brittany Griner. And you know, earlier this week, President Putin actually signed into law even harsher legislation that was anti-LGBTQ in Russia. She is in a, she obviously is an American but she also has fallen into a demographic within Russia where she would have been marginalized, maybe even targeted as a black woman, as a member of the LGBTQ community. Her release certainly probably contemplated what the circumstances were like for her there. Can you speak to the personal aspect of what it is like for this particular person to have been brought home, knowing what she must have been facing? And I note in just the very few clips we have of her even crossing that tarmac, Mm -hmm. It appears that even her dreadlocks have been taken off, have been cut off. And I'm wondering if just the holistic nature of it all, what is your personal reaction to what you have seen?
3: My personal reaction, look, you know, we are, uh, I am thrilled. We are thrilled. I am proud uh, of this president, proud to be working in this administration uh, and the work that the president continues to do uh, to get uh, Americans home, continues to do to make sure that uh, we are safe, that we are well represented, uh, and that uh, he works day in in and out uh, thinking about the American people. That's why I do this job. That's Mm. why many of us do this job, you know. When Brittany is ready, we're going to give her the space, uh, and we're going to make sure that she has everything that she needs uh, to get back uh, on her feet. Uh, offering uh, any uh, mental uh, mental health uh, uh, services or any uh, you know physical health uh, services that she may need to kind of re uh, engage get back into society. We're going to give her and her family that time. Uh, sh- as you know, she's on her way to the states, and we'll be landing uh, in the next few hours. And when she's ready to tell her story. And, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be happy to hear it. Uh, certainly not going to speak to her personal experiences. But for us, for me, uh, today is a very good day. And we are going to keep, uh, the president is going to keep fighting for other Americans who are wrongfully detained.
2: Crin Jean-Pierre, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thanks you, Laura. Great conversation.
2: I just can't stop thinking
1: about Brittany Griner on the plane, seeing that picture, that photo, well, video of her. She looks different already. Smiling. She looks younger. She Mm -hmm. looks like the weight of the world is off of her shoulders. However, how surreal it must be. That moment right there of her, how surreal these past 10 months must be for her. And she must think she's dreaming.
2: I bet it's not going to be real until she touches down and is in the maybe arms of her wife and thinking, Am I really safe? Because you can imagine to have one's freedom taken away so quickly that you almost have this sense that it can be done again to oh. you.
1: Oh, yes. So. I'm sure.
2: I mean, we're, we're going to
1: talk about yeah. the therapy and the oh psychological road that's ahead. Absolutely. But right now, I want to bring in retired U.S. District Judge Shira Shenlin who sentenced Victor Boot to 25 years after he was convicted of arms trafficking back in 2012. Judge, thanks so much for being here. How do you feel about Victor Boot walking free today?
4: I'm okay with that because I'm so happy that Brittany Griner is home. And whatever it took to get her home, I'm for it. So I am not against Victor Boot being sent back to Russia.
1: This is interesting to hear because so many people say that it really, that the swap, while well, everybody's grateful that Britney's back, that the swap didn't make sense. He was, everybody says he's a bad guy, okay? And so let me just run through it for people who don't know his history. As you know better than anybody, he was caught in a sting operation, okay? After agents um, basically posed as terrorists, and he was willing to sell them hundreds of surface-to-air missiles, Thousands of AK-47 machine guns, five tons of plastic explosives to this terrorist group who admitted that they wanted to kill American pilots in Colombia. So why should he be serving any less than the 25 years that you sentenced him to?
4: You know, I thought the 25-year sentence was longer than it needed to be when I sentenced him. I had to give that sentence. I had no discretion. Those are called statutory mandatory minimums. But why didn't he deserve that with all of what I, thought it what was, I just spelled out? Okay, I thought it was too high. Remember, this was a businessman who was in the arms trade. He had been in the arms trade for years. But it seemed to me that he would stopped being in the arms trade, but he'd never been prosecuted. And this, our government was determined to bring him to justice— And they created this sting operation and they had to convince him to do it he really was reluctant at first there's no question there are tapes and eventually he said oh okay okay i'll do it and he was able to do it and he said i can produce these these weapons that you you ticked off all those weapons but remember the words came from the agents they said now you understand that these weapons can be used to kill americans and he said i'm i'm okay with that they're my enemy too but He was really agreeing with them as you would agree with a customer. Mm. If you were a businessman, you'd agree with your customer. So it wasn't as if he is an ideological terrorist like the kind of people who flew a plane into the World Trade Center. No,
1: he is, I mean, he was accused of selling arms to
4: al-Qaeda and Taliban. Not in the one that you convicted him for, but in the past. I mean, that's what part of his record is. That's his record, but that was never a crime against the United States. And I'm not so sure by the way that you're right about al-Qaeda. There were other groups that he certainly sold to many countries in Africa, both sides of civil war. The point is, he really didn't care who his customer was. He was selling arms to whoever would buy those arms. And that's different from somebody who has an ideology. Yes. He- yes, but he's still a bad guy. Oh, for sure. And he's he- still a
1: dangerous guy. And let me just, well, let me. Is he still a dangerous guy? Good question. And so th- I'm interested to hear that you think that he was retired because earlier um, there we had on the former U.N. trafficking expert. She is the woman who is credited with getting Victor Boot arrested. She just talked um, on CNN uh, to Aaron Burnett. Here's what she said.
2: He is what I call a weapon of mass destruction personified, and he's on, he, he will be ready for Putin to deploy him, especially in Ukraine and Africa and other war zones. That is really heartbreaking for me. I do think um, Victor Boot is a security threat, and we cannot minimize this issue, even though it's very important that um, Brittany Griner came home. We need to be very proactive here. Um, Putin is going to be ready to deploy Victor Boot. He comes with years of experience, years of contacts. He started in Ukraine, and I think that's one of the areas we have to be concerned about right away. Victor Boot will be a major asset for Putin.
1: So she doesn't think he's retired. She thinks he's gonna be in national security. That's right, Correct.
4: she does. But remember, he's now been in jail for twelve years. He's been Cut off from his network, and before that, he hadn't been active for a number of years. So, if you've lost your network, if you've lost your suppliers, you have to rebuild that network. I respectfully disagree, but she's an expert in national security. I'm not, but from the evidence I heard at the trial, it seems unlikely to me that he can go back in the business now. He's a mark guy. I can't see him going back in the business of dealing in arms.
2: You know what's interesting? I mean, and thinking about the idea of the mandatory minimum yes, that you had to sentence him to, it's a very important point you've raised. But for many, they're looking at this and saying, you know, there is an imbalance between the allegations against the two, which I'm sure you agree, the absolutely. allegations against Brittany Griner, otherwise well known as BG, and the allegations against Victor Boot. In thinking about the amount of time, would your position be different if he had not yet served any time oh, compared to the idea of having now served more than a decade? Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. That that I couldn't go along with at all. Surely this man needed to be punished, needed to be sentenced, needed to serve time in prison. But the question for any judge in any sentence is how much is needed to deter and protect the public? I think he's 55 years old. I think he's been in jail a long time. I think he basically is going to get home to the wife and kid. I don't think he's going to be an active arms dealer now. Russians have to replenish their supply of arms. They are low on arms. So maybe this guy can be useful in finding who has arms. Mind you, they found Iran, so maybe they'll find mm. more with his help. And, and Judge, what about the argument that they should have also gotten Paul Whelan for this? Of that he,
1: course. That Victor Boot was such a big fish that they should have gotten Paul Whelan?
4: Well, the answer to should have is they would have if they could have. They certainly tried to negotiate for the release of two-for-one. That's something many of us advocated. When I talked about this in August when it was first raised, I said it had to be two-for-one because she didn't commit any crime at all. In New York, it wouldn't even be a violation. We're talking less than a gram of cannabis oil, which is good for your knee and your shoulder and your back. I mean, it's nonsense. That was not a crime. This guy was a serious crime arms dealer who, as you said, supplied arms to the worst people in the world. so of course, there was a disparity. Yeah. And if we could have gotten both of them free, that would have made more sense. However, as the Whelan family said, you do what you have to do, and they agreed that it was if it was one or none, let's go with one.
5: You
2: know the, 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 you're very, very keenly aware of the difficult choices in trying to balance you know the, the different outcomes, but it seems to me if he really is retired, I, I do wonder why Russia wants him back so badly. That's, a, that's the, that's the million-dollar question that only, frankly, I'm sure, Vladimir Putin and his administration can answer. I don't have such answer. a problem
4: with that. You know, most countries want their own back. And this man was well-connected at the top. Sure, he knew Putin, he knew other high levels officials, and they want him back. He's their guy. I get that. Judge,
1: let's hope you're right. Um, <laughs> Judge Ellen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, you Very appreciate me. it.
2: We've got a lot more to come on Brittany Griner's release as we await her arrival and touching down in Texas. Plus, first here on CNN, the January 6th committee is considering criminal referrals for at least four Trump allies. We'll discuss who and why. Brittany Griner is on her way home tonight after a prisoner swap for convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, bringing an end to a more than 10 months in captivity. But concerns remain over American Paul Whelan, who is still in Russian custody. Plus, first right here on CNN, four high profile Trump aides could face criminal referrals from the January 6th committee. It's got got a lot talking about tonight to go to, and we're going to bring in our panel, CNN anchor John Berman, and CNN political commentators, Essie Cup and Van Jones. What a day. Mm. The idea that this is, first of all, in context, you guys, This is now even longer, frankly, than the invasion into Ukraine. Remember, it was a week before that she was actually Mm. detained. We didn't know about it for quite some time. And we woke up this morning to this brand new news and there has been a whole mixed bag of reactions. Mostly great, knowing that she's home, but still a lot of concern for those who've been left behind. What is your reaction to this, Van?
6: Um, Joy, just joy. Uh, Because I understand this is a result of two kinds of power, Uh, the power of black women who just fought like hell for this. This was not just some act of grace from above. African-American women saw themselves in her and fought and fought and fought. And the WNBA women forced everybody, including all the NBA guys, to stand up and be a part of this. So so there's that kind of power. And then it met the power of a president who knows who brought him to the dance. Black women are the backbone of this party. You can put uh, uh, Griner's name right up against uh, the first African-American female vice president, the first African-American female uh, Supreme Court justice. This is a president who understands the value of black women and will fight for that. And you put those two things together, you have tremendous joy. Of course, the, the heartbreak of anyone being left behind, but there is joy tonight.
7: Essie, mm-hmm. go ahead. Well, I agree. I think, I think there's a little danger in what you're saying, mm-hmm. though, for, for Biden. I, I think he cares about folks like Paul Whelan, too. Sure. He call, cares about guys. He cares about white guys. Um, And so I don't think this was a choice uh, that he made. I think you can believe two things, and you should believe them both. That this is an unequivocal success for Joe Biden. And um, he did everything he should. He made the right decision. Um, You know, if your choice is one or none, you take one. But at the same time, at a huge cost, huge, Um, it's a cost to Paul Whelan. Um I spoke to spa- people who work in this space today and they said essentially the clock starts over. Mm for Paul Whelan, potentially. That's awful. Um, Victor Boot, not a great guy, a very dangerous guy. I love what the judge had to say. It was adorable. But he's a a dangerous guy. And folks
1: have said he could be unleashed to Ukraine in a week. Well, and furthermore, I mean, uh, uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says that this is bad for national security, that it's an incentive for finding more American targets to hang on to.
8: All of these things can be true at once. And I think the way that you're both framing it Mm. is so important. This is not a choice between Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. This was a choice between Brittany Griner and nothing. That doesn't mean that there's still not a very important discussion about whether or not the United States engages with rogue nations like Russia over getting hostages back. That's an important discussion to have, whether that should happen Ever. And, and, you know, I think that it, it is happening, and, and I welcome it. I will say there was a distinct change in U.S. policy over this issue when the Trump administration. This all changed between 2016 and 2020, when Donald Trump made it a point to do things the United States hadn't really done this overtly before, which was work to get hostages home no matter what the cost. Now, John Bolton said today they were offered uh, Victor Booth for Paul Whelan, and they didn't take it. Donald Trump himself seemed to go off the rails and indicate that wasn't the case today. But, but you know, Trump exchanged uh, Taliban, senior Taliban prisoners for two Westerners held in Afghanistan. He exchanged 300, he worked to exchange 300 Houthi rebels in Yemen for a couple of Americans being held hostages. That just wasn't done for a long time because mm-hmm. of what SC is talking about. And maybe it's a good change, but it's important to acknowledge that it is a change And it does put people at risk, potentially.
2: You know, let's be clear, too. I mean, just the idea of, yes, it is true that she is a black woman, a member of the LGBTQ community, all the intersexual identity there. And what may have been even more impactful, that she may very well have been targeted while she was in Russia for those very reasons. But it's also important to think about taking a step back. This was somebody who was accused of a crime and was not provided the due process we would want for our citizens abroad or even domestically. And we would guarantee to people like Victor Boot who had a trial based on charges. And that is kind of a fundamental notion of the rule of law in our country. We underscore that in our Constitution and beyond. And thinking of that very notion, that's why in thinking about these discussions around the committees in Congress right now, the January 6th Committee in particular... Looking at what happens when we are dismissive of those sorts of constitutional virtues or what we hold dear, and I'm wondering what you guys think about the fact that we are now learning about potential criminal charges and referrals coming out of that January sixth committee and the fact that as you mentioned an unequivocal win for Biden what does this say unequivocally perhaps about the prior administration
7: what 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 do what do the referrals say yes uh, well i I I think it's good news. I mean, they don't really mean anything. It's it's symbolism. And we hope that the DOJ has already begun working on um, some of this stuff and isn't relying on the January 6th Committee of Lawmakers to suggest it. Uh, because we, we all heard the stories. Uh, but it's good that we're seeing some accountability. I hope this is like step one of...
1: Many. Let's look at the pictures of the people that CNN can report that the January 6th committee is considering for criminal referrals. So here they are. There are Donald Trump at the top. There, Rudy Giuliani, and then there's John Eastman, and then there's Jeff Clark and Mark Meadows.
8: Good there. likenesses, I would say.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like that we all had to put on our glasses yes. and, well, and get our uh, Does look our, like
8: Mark Meadows? Our microscopes.
1: Um, but uh, what do we think about those? That, that choice of those five people, Van, does that seem I mean, look, like... I mean, why look, wouldn't the uh, DOJ charge look, those guys?
6: I mean, look, you, you, could, you could take those five and you could multiply them by five and you could throw five more in there and you'd still have, you know, wouldn't have all of the people who were responsible for taking this country to the brink. And, um, you know, I think that for... You're, you're talking about justice, you're talking about rule of law. It does... This particular situation... Underscores this sense that there are two systems of justice. There are people who are in jail right now for such minor stuff for so long. They didn't run up in the Capitol in the middle of a mm-hmm. joint session of Congress and, and 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 beat people up and attack cops. They you know were, they had you know some petty drugs on them in this country right. and are in jail in this country. And so when you when you look at that situation and you say, like, well, what do you have to do? Right to get just charged with with something.
7: Well, and I've said this before. I think with with you, John, someone said, look, um, Trump is not above the law. And I think I... Yes, he is. As of this moment, he 100% is. To a normal person who's not a legal scholar, you think, well, he (laughs) is
8: above the law. But Congress... Here's the thing about this, the criminal referrals. In this case, Congress really isn't the law. And I defer to the two people at the table with law degrees, Van Jones and, and Laura, who worked at the Justice Department itself. My sense... From talking to people like you who have worked there is that what's going to happen with the investigators over at DOJ and Merrick Garland and the special counsel and be like, whatever, we're just going to do what we're going to do. Thanks, Congress, for your time. But this isn't going to directly impact our investigation. And our friend Elliot Williams, someone else Mm -hmm. who's worked at the DOJ, put it to me the other day. He said, you know, Congress is doing this because it's right for Congress, Mm. They're not necessarily doing it because it's right for the investigation. That doesn't diminish the work the January sure. 6th committee has done. The work the January 6th committee has done, I think, is surprising to a lot of people. They, and it's also right for posterity, they, by the and way. The, yeah. And that's a different thing, right? It might, right? They, if they, they want to yeah. make a statement about this that's
6: political, and I'm not saying just because it's political is bad, uh, but I think they can. But I do think there is, is a value to uh, normalizing the idea that there can be criminal referrals of any kind against a former president or his henchmen, because I do think this is, this is a mixed question of both law and politics. And so to the extent that one branch of government says, hey, we think there's crimes here, it might make it easier for the executive branch to say, say that. So I do think that these things can go together. Obviously, it's not Congress's job to put people in jail, but so far, nobody's trying to put uh, a Trump in jail. So.
2: But their job is to have legislative oversight and think about maybe there's a way to fortify aspects of our Constitution and aspects of our laws in this country. And we're waiting for that report. I think yes. it's coming out. Will they say, what, the 21st? 21st. We will that's see. right. All right. Thank you all very much. Uh, meanwhile, bringing Brittany
1: Reiner home is just the latest in a string of victories for President Biden in the past week. Are people underestimating him at their own expense? Mm. That's next. It's been a winning week for President Biden. He secured the release of WNBA player Brittany Greiner from a Russian jail today. He also
2: supported the landmark legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriages. And that's not their only wins, by the way, in the course of the administration. I mean, in recent weeks, it also managed to avert a rail strike as well as defy midterm history. But despite these accomplishments, it still seems that Biden is, well, he's being underestimated. The real question is why? Back with us, John Bierman. Essie Cup and Van Jones. John Beerman. Bierman? I mean, he does our, like that.
8: He doesn't <laughs> like beer. i just lucky to be I was here. here. You can <laughs> call me anything
2: You know else. what? I was thinking I heard it and I said it and I was no, like, I should have said Beard Man. Beard Man. Johnny B. Yeah, so I'll, start, I'll start with you since I've given you a different name this evening. Why do you think he's being underestimated? I think Joe Biden, and this really started during the primaries,
8: there's a little bit of a tortoise and a hare phenomenon. He was counted out. Every stage of the way, after Iowa and New Hampshire, and he was just, I'm going to stay the course, and then sure enough, he wins. Uh, and then we've seen it in the administration, too. Oh, my God, everything's going astray. He's <laughs> like, I'm just going to stay the course, and it turns out okay for him. I think, I don't know whether he doesn't care about the frenzy and tizzy that's going on around him, or he doesn't hear it. And I'm not being pejorative there. He doesn't, he's not aware of it, but he just, he stays going forward and he's managed to be effective at what he wants to do. What may make him an incredibly odd fit for this Twitter moment, the, the, the you know, the Twitter society, may make him a good fit for, like, real-life mm. society and getting actual stuff done.
1: You know what's yeah. so funny, Essie? There's yeah. another network that <clears throat> devotes hours of programming to montages mm-hmm. of his bumbling mm-hmm. his word finding difficulties and they yuck it up about you know mm-hmm. how senile or old he is mm-hmm. and then, i think i know that network yes i think I'm, I'm, the, you may be familiar we, with we're it we're both a little familiar and then he um pulls off all of those legislative yeah. wins and a midterm yeah. victory and gets you know Brittany griner home it's like i think they might be Snowballing there, yeah, like uh, buffaloing their uh, their viewers into thinking that he's not as effective as he is, that he's weak, uh,
7: that that he's an easy target, that he's an easy takeover, that he's incompetent. And I also just think they're they're sort of Republicans are misdiagnosing misdiagnosing um, Biden and their own problems. I heard um, a former colleague of ours, Newt Gingrich. This week, taking a stab at it. Tommy Lahren, a Fox News personality, taking a stab at it. And both said a version of, we should be beating these socialists and communists, and we're not. I, I think most people don't see the socialism and the communism is the problem. They're using these words that sound really scary. And I think most people are like, where is it? Where is all of that yeah. that you're talking about? The wokism, the, you know, where is it all? And so the culture wars are effective but only at agitating their base. They're not really uh, affecting this mass electorate who I think is starting to see through all that stuff. I mean, yeah. man, you think
2: about it. I mean, <clears throat> there's that old saying, underestimate me, this will be fun.
6: Yeah.
2: For Biden, he's probably having fun at the notion of every time they're underestimating, like well, might. then you overestimated a red wave. You overestimated the inability to get things done. You have overestimated the ability to get... Herschel Walker-elect, you've overestimated so many aspects of it. Perhaps it's more of a, maybe an inadvertent strategy at this point to be under that radar. Yeah,
6: you remember uh, Colombo, you know, he's always out One like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 um, You know, so, so there, there, is, there is a value to being underestimated. But I think it's not just Republicans that are underestimating him. Um, for a, a bunch of Democrats have mm-hmm. been as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's this cognitive dissonance between someone who looks so um, feeble I mean, he does, he did, those of us who've known Joe Biden, I worked for him in the Obama White House. You know, he was, a, he was a, a more, you know, vigorous figure. And now he's older and he looks older. And yet his record is that of a colossus. I mean, he has pulled off more stuff in the two years he's been in office with this little, tiny little majority than a lot of presidents get done, get done in a whole term. And so when you look at somebody, hold on a second, your record, it's like, like you got the most basketball. Points in the game ever in the first half, mm. in the first half, but at the same time, you 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 look like you are are, are, are you know grandpa, and so I think Democrats are just now realizing, wait a minute, <laughs> we've got a winner here. We've I think that's
7: all here. true, but I also just want to. Call, I I'm not sure he's a very strong candidate going into 2024. He has every right to run, right? But the every right support what you're saying. I mean, everything that Dan yeah. said is not
1: being reflected
7: in the approval. Well, I, I I would put him up against Trump again. That that worked great last time. But a Ron DeSantis or someone else, I don't think he's got it. And it's not just because of Republicans, but Democrats. He was elected to be a transitional president, not a transformational one. And I don't think he can take the party or the country where it ultimately wants to go. He
8: has a saying, actually, I think, which describes why he's had some of the success and what he wants to do. I just want to make clear people can judge whether or not they like what he's gotten done. But what he's wanted to do, he's gotten done. He always says, don't judge me uh, against the almighty. Judge me against the alternative. Yeah. Right. Mm. And so mm-hmm. that's where he's benefited a lot. Yeah. Uh, up until this point, who he's yeah. been running against, what he's been fighting against. Um, you know, that may change at some point. Don. The best thing he's got going for him is Donald Trump. Right. You know, if Donald Trump doesn't want to go through with this election, things may be very different.
2: All right, guys, thank you. Yeah. I'm gonna, to call him John Beerman from now on. I think so too. It's been <laughs> it it's had a whole for different a vibe during prime time. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> well, look, Harry and Meghan are now calling out the royal family in their new docu series, and if you haven't had a chance to watch yet, well, you should stay tuned. It's We've got clips. We have scope. Tonight, we're hearing Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's side of the story. The first three episodes of their six-part docuseries, Harry and Meghan, hitting Netflix today.
1: It includes pictures and stories from the early days of their relationship and Meghan's first meeting with the royal family. They also address their relentless media attention, which Harry says has a race element when it comes to coverage of Meghan. Let's watch.
9: As far as a lot of the family were concerned, everything that she was being put through, they had been put through as well. So it was almost like a rite of passage. And some of the members of the family was like, right, but my wife had to go through that. So why should your girlfriend be treated any differently? Why should you get special treatment? Why should she be protected? And I said, the difference here is the race element.
1: Mm-hmm. Back with us, John Berman, Essie Cup, and Van Jones. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Van, I thought that was just very insightful to hear that they all said, well, we all had to go through it. It was a rite of passage. And the difference is the race element. Is it? I mean, the paparazzi... T- tell me what your thoughts about that are, since uh, all I see is paparazzi swarming <coughs> all of the women at all times.
6: I think this is a, uh, a case of trauma meeting tradition. Um, I think you have two people who had really significant trauma... You know, Harry lost his mom at a very young age. There's not a bunch of royals that had their mom basically killed by paparazzi. And so you just can't say, well, you know, get over it. And then with Meghan, she's a black woman. And once you start throwing out racial stuff, we have a 400-year history of that leading to a lot of violence. And so you have this new modern couple managing a personal trauma and historical trauma. And the, the, the royal family could not get past the tradition. And so you guys just act like everybody else. You should act like everybody else. You want some special privileges. No, we are in a unique situation with special trauma and you guys need to respond. And the failure of the tradition to give way to the trauma results in this whole mess.
2: It doesn't sound like either from the documentary I think they're exposing that it was something that was like a inadvertent or an ignorance of it, but maybe intentional, that we have chosen intentionally not to provide through some sort of you have to go through what we went through but there is something different in you. i mean it she is a black woman entering the monarchy it's it is it is different and, and the and history I, of the monarchy is different there are aspects of it as a black woman difference one that way she to put it, go ahead. I mean different but <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea of and what deserved, she would have to think about and
6: and and here's the reality they deserved the support of their family they deserved a family that could listen and could adapt, and they didn't get that. Well, and I mean, now is people want to say too that she's, much? And, and, and now people want to say that she's a crybaby and she's a prima donna, et cetera, et cetera. That I is ask, the
2: narrative. People but but, are I,
6: but I, I, I ask anybody: you put yourself in that situation, and you imagine all those people coming at you, and you live in a, you live on a continent with actual Nazis, et cetera, and say that you would be happy to have no protection. Yeah, all I don't I'm agree. saying
1: is that she, she, and she was asking, at whatever, 88-year-old traditional woman, to adapt. And I don't know if that woman was
7: Also, we we live in a country with actual Nazis. I just want to point that out, too. But, listen, I... How do you see it? I Well, like I said last night, I I don't really watch the royals, and that's my right. We won a war over it. (laughs) Um, But, listen, I'm glad that they're telling their story and what they went through. And I think it is eye-opening, and it's a good reckoning. What I don't like is how broadly they painted... This story. I mean, they throw the whole of the UK is racist. The media is racist. The paparazzi are racist. Um, Brexit supporters are. Ra- they're very broad about how they talk about what they went through, very personally what they went through. And I wish they were a bit more surgical, unless they truly believe that everyone is is like that and everyone there is. Awful
1: and out to get them. Well, maybe, do we have time to play one more clip? Yeah, I didn't see it that Okay, here's the unconscious bias that Harry talks about.
9: This family, sometimes, you know, you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And there is a huge level of unconscious bias. The thing with unconscious bias is it's actually no one's fault. But once it's been pointed out or identified within yourself... You then need to make it right.
2: What's interesting to me is the idea of, I mean, we were talking about the monarchy. And painting with a broad stroke. I mean, his family, which normally would be your personal family, you think about it. If your family is synonymous with a country, how can you avoid painting with a broad stroke?
8: So there's, I've been doing a lot of research, which is to say I watched two of the episodes. (laughs) uh, With a mixture of like rage on we and arousal. It's crazy what's going on there. But there's a quote from a guy, James Holt, who was a former palace spokesman, who says, there's a family, there is this family anointed by God and by blood to rule over our country and other countries around the world. It's a mm-hmm. difficult conversation to have, he says, <laughs> which encapsulates my whole feeling uh, about this. Sometimes just take a step back and it sort of makes my hair hurt. It's insane. I know, you've always felt it's this way. It's insane what we're talking felt about. The and and so there. what I like about this documentary is that it's, it's at least bringing up the conversation about the whole thing again yeah. and making people look at it and go, Wait a second. What are we actually talking about? Let alone talking about in America. Yes. Whereas Se, my favorite Massachusetts girl, points out, like we fought a war to like get And you thought you'd yeah. be done with it. I
1: thought After I'd be done that. with the whole war. Um, <laughs> all right, friends. Thank you for all of the different perspectives, and we'll be right back. We want to highlight
2: the good stuff happening across the country by celebrating real heroes. Join Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa to find out who will be the 2022 Hero of the Year. CNN Heroes All Star Tribute begins Sunday at 8 p.m.
10: Sunday, it's the time of year to be inspired and honor some of humanity's best.
5: We have found homes for almost 3,000 dogs.
9: Our community engagement center used to be the community drug house. I want my grandchildren to have it better than what I have it today. It has always wanted to serve other people.
10: Human suffering has no borders. People are people and love is love. Join Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa live as they present the 2022 Hero of the Year.
6: Join me in honoring CNN Hero of the
10: Year. CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute Sunday at eight.
1: Most inspirational night of the year. I can't wait for Sunday. Really nice. Really really good. good. Okay, so up next, a close personal friend of Brittany Griner speaks out about Griner's release. Griner is supposed to touch down in San Antonio very soon. We'll be right back.
2: Well, Britney Griner is flying home tonight. She was released from Russian detention, a penal colony, today in a prisoner swap after being wrongfully held for nearly 300 days. And she's expected to arrive soon in San Antonio, where
1: there's a Defense Department program known as PISA, It stands for Post-Isolation Support Activities. I mean, just think about yeah. how she ha- has to re-acclimate, how she can re-enter after 10 months in something like that. So yeah. this is meant to help
2: Americans who've been detained acclimate somehow back to normal life. And of course, she's somebody who's a celebrity, so she can't just have, I'm sure, a period of anonymity. Mm-hmm and be in a sanctuary, which is interesting in and of itself. I want to bring in L.A. Sparks player Neka Agwumake. She's also the president of the WNBA's Players Association and a close friend of Brittany Griner. Neka, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. You must be overjoyed by this news on a personal level and also really, really encouraged by all the work that you and your teammates and the Players Association have really done to throw their support behind her.
11: Laura, thank you so, so, so much. Um, You know, you work tirelessly also to use this platform to highlight stories that need to be told, and it's been a long road, um, but I am, I I woke up in tears this morning, Mm -hmm. as many, many other people did, and um, I, I was just so thrilled and relieved to hear that BG was coming home, and we are incredibly grateful to President Biden and the entire Biden-Harris administration for their work to get BG home. And on behalf of all of the players, um, you know, we as women athletes, we do our best to stick together. And when we move, we, we don't leave anyone behind and we work f- with intention. And so we're just so grateful to see all of the support and celebration um, as BG almost comes home soon.
2: I mean, the WNBA has been, even if not always, recognized as they should be, Mecca has been at the forefront of every one of these very important social movements and conversations, let alone the very personal as it relates to BG as well. And it is personal to you. It's not just somebody you met as a professional athlete yourself. You all are from the same hometown. You've known her and her family since you were little girls.
11: Yes. um, I've been playing against BG since I was about 14, 15 years old. And, um, to kind of have our careers just kind of you know follow each other in parallel into the WNBA and see each other and support each other along the way, um, both here and um, overseas. I've played against her globally. I've played with her globally. And so um, this, this hits uh, a lot of parts of my heart. And um, I'm just very, very grateful that we get to see her soon.
2: Nega, do you think that the impact of what she has gone through is going to impact other players in the WNBA who, frankly, because of salary discussions and that you do not match your male counterparts, although you more than match and compete in your athletic prowess, the salaries are not commensurate, are not similar, are not equitable, forcing many athletes to go abroad and play? Will this, do you think, impact the resolve or the intention of other players in your league to seek out opportunities abroad.
11: I'm I'm happy you brought this up. You know, this is uh, it's already impacting. You know, it was impacting even before this unimaginable situation that um, BG went through. Um, you know, she, we have to highlight why she was over there, and and it's the overarching umbrella is pay inequity, and that's something that. Continues to be um, a point of contention when it comes to how the players, especially women athletes, follow their dreams and are compensated um, and paid adequately. and And I think you're right. You know, this is something that this is something that cannot disappear. This is something that's forefront on the conversation. Um, and. I just hope that it gets better. I hope opportunities and resources are more and investment is more so that players don't feel like they have to make decisions between, um, you know, life and death when it comes to just trying to earn a living doing what they love.
2: And speaking of what she loves, I mean, just the idea of um, her being home with her loved ones, with her wife, with the the family and support that she has. I, I do wonder in terms of a lot of the retorts that are coming out, as positive as so many have been about it, what do you say to those who want to be dismissive of this moment or diminish her to just being a celebrity, to just being somebody who had the attention because it was politically expedient to focus on a Black woman? What do you say to people who want to diminish her to her identity in those contexts?
11: Um... You know, I think that uh, this case really um, it pointed to the fact that so many people try to impart upon others is that it's you really don't know until it happens to you. And I'm speaking as someone who's not even, you know, Sherelle or a, a direct family member. I, I feel that I'm close to BG enough for for this to matter. And I think also as women in this world, as a mostly a mostly black uh, a black league of women, it, it's it's very difficult to hear um, non-celebratory comments when it comes to BG, but she remained resilient and her courage and integrity and hopefully also the joy that's being expressed um, overwhelmingly for BG's return will also be a part of the reason why we continue to highlight why the next Americans need to come home. Mm. That's something that we've always prided ourselves on in the WNBA we learn through experience. We come ready because we link arms. We may not always know exactly what to do, but we lean on the experts. We lean on those like you who give us platforms for us to educate ourselves, to do better for everyone. And and we're hoping that in support of BG that we can continue to advocate for the return of all Americans because that is the first priority. Um, using Americans as hostages um, no matter what what type of social status they have is not right. It's a moral issue and we have to focus on that um, as opposed to reasons why some or others shouldn't come. We're very sad for Paul Willens' family and we hope that that he would have been included, but we have to continue to advocate for those that are still over there.
2: Necca aguil Kay, thank you so much. Really important to hear your insight on behalf of the Players Association. I certainly hope you're able to speak with your long friend in and, and, and short time. Thank you.
11: Thank you for having me. Hmm.
2: Allison, really important to think about. I mean, knowing her since she was 14, a lot of people getting to know BG, as she's known as a professional athlete, but imagine what that's like to have watched your friend your childhood friend, long-term friend, endure that.
1: And never know if this is the day. Should you yeah. get your hopes up this day? Yeah. I'm sure there were all sorts of false starts and false hopes, and then they would be, you know, dashed, and then for it to them to wake up to this. And as yeah. she said, she woke up crying. Unbelievable. All right, let's bring in to talk about what's next. That's CNN counterterrorism analyst Philip Mudd, or Phil Mudd, as we call him, and mm-hmm. Jonathan Franks, the spokesperson for the Bring Our Families Home mm-hmm. campaign. He worked to get Trevor Reed free. Gentlemen, great to see you. Phil, um, was this a good trade? I mean, trading. obviously everybody's happy to get Brittany Griner home. Obviously that's a huge victory. But trading her, having to trade her, having to let this arms dealer who was convicted for selling weapons to terrorists who wanted to kill Americans in the past, um, was this a good trade?
10: Yes. My first answer is what's your option? If you want to go to Vegas and play against the House, if you want House odds, you're not going to get it. If we're going to go to the Russians and say we want an equal table, we want her back more than they want Victor Boot back, the Russians are going to say no. If you want to go to a Mercedes dealership and say I want a new Mercedes for 20 grand, they're going to say no. We were the weaker party here. We wanted an American citizen home, an American citizen who committed at best, at most, a minor misdemeanor against a pawn scum arms dealer. We didn't have an option here, Allison, and I think the answer is bring her home. I realize people want other American citizens home, but if you can get one home, bring her home. We didn't have any options here. We were the weaker player here, and they played us.
2: You know, thinking about that, Jonathan, I I, want to bring you in here, because if you think about the idea of the leverage that Phil is alluding to, when you're talking about other Americans who are believed to be wrongfully detained like Paul Whelan and others, even in Iran and other places across the world. I wonder what leverage you anticipate the U.S. being able to have available to bring him home.
12: Hey, and thanks for having me tonight. It's an important question. I, we, I, As much as I, I think Victor Boot was obviously the marquee, um, uh, but there are still Russians in our custody that uh, President Putin is very much interested in. So I'm, I'm hopeful that... Um, Um, we can get on with trading for Mr. Whelan as soon as possible.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, CNN got an exclusive interview with Paul Whelan today from the Russian jail, and he thinks that he is and has always been in a different category for some reason in Russia. So here's what he told us.
0: They've always considered me to be at a higher level um, than other criminals um, of my sort. And um, For whatever reason, uh, I'm treated differently than another um, individual here from a Western country that's also on a charge of espionage. So even though we're both here for espionage, um, I'm treated much differently than he is, and my treatment is also much different than um, others held for espionage at other
1: prisons. Phil, what do you think that's about?
10: Boy, I think this is more about domestic politics in Russia than it is about America. You could look at this and say that this is about dividing America, that this is about using Paul Whelan. I mean, why would you allow him to go on American TV to divide America, to say, you know, Joe Biden can't bring him home? I think there's an equal part of this that would be Vladimir Putin telling his people, look, we have Americans here who are drug users. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's how they were portrayed, with Britney uh, Greiner, we have American citizens here who are spies. I'm here to protect Russia. This man is a, a, is a spy. He is at a higher level, and therefore, I'm going to demand a lot for him. I think this is domestic politics in Russia more than America.
2: You know, I'm thinking about what it's like for her, and Brittany Greiner in particular, as she's coming home. Jonathan, can you speak to what it's like? I mean, the idea of coming from this circumstance to touching down in Texas. I know there is a program of some sort to... Reacclimate one from being in the position that she's been in, but what is that process like to try to assist in that moving of the needle?
12: You know, the trip home is surreal for for most of the folks that come home just because it's often done very quickly. They often don't get a whole lot of notice, and then all of a sudden they're in San Antonio, Texas. Mm. Um, And... You know, we spoke when Trevor was on his way home. We spoke to him from the plane repeatedly, um, and it was, you know, a moment where everybody was really happy, but everybody was also a little dazed and confused.
1: I can just imagine. I mean, honestly, the the joy mixed with the exhaustion, mixed with the disbelief. Um, obviously, it's going to take, I would imagine, a long time for her to reacclimate psychologically. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your expertise. Really great to talk to you tonight. Thank you. Okay, so the DOJ looking to help Donald Trump, uh, looking to hold, not help, not help, hold (laughs) Donald Trump in contempt of court for failing to turn over all of those classified documents that he was keeping at Mar-a-Lago. There's more news on the investigations tonight. So we'll tell you about the high profile Trump allies who could also be in hot water. Mm. The Justice Department is asking a federal judge to hold Donald Trump in contempt of court for failing to comply with that subpoena to turn over all of those classified documents. Here to discuss, we have CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson and political commentators Essie Cupp and Errol Lewis. Errol, it's not like the National Archives didn't give him a chance. Mm -hmm. For a year and a half, starting in May of 2021, they have tried virtually every month, we have a timeline to get, to extract the classified documents that they knew he had because there there were many missing, including, I think, the correspondence with Kim Jong-un. That's right. And by the way, there were also top secret documents. So it's not like he hasn't had a chance. Why wouldn't they hold him in contempt at this point?
9: Well, it's going to be hard to figure out who to hold in contempt because they're playing this very odd game, something we've never seen before, as is often the case with Donald Trump. No one wants to step forward and say that they were the official custodian. No one wants to say that... They're going to uh, attest to the court on pain of perjury or or, or other kind of professional sanctions for the attorneys uh, that they have all of the documents that were requested pursuant to the subpoena. And as long as that's the case, who are you supposed to find? It's a a, a novel. Mm. It's a novel uh, (laughs) uh, 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 approach to all of this. But essentially what they're saying is um, no one was in charge. No one uh, will, will take responsibility for actually fulfilling this subpoena and therefore the court's going to have to figure out what to do. Judge Howell's going to have to figure out uh, what kind of sanctions might actually produce it. Because let's keep in mind, it's not just about punishing someone. And They actually want and need to get the nation's secrets together to figure out what has happened and to ameliorate any damage that might have been done. That's the point of the subpoena. And, um, you know, they're getting zero cooperation and this odd kind of I wasn't in charge. No one's in charge. Nobody knows.
13: Here's the thing. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And so the reality is, is that it would be shameful to say, well, it was Peter, it was Paul, it was Mary, it was Jane, it was, you know, whoever it was. You know, there's this sort of divide. And what is what am I talking about? You have people who don't comply, who are normal citizens with the court. And all of a sudden, within 30 days, 60 days, you are in contempt and it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's not only a fine, you're going in. And you're going to go in until or unless you do what this court directs you. So
8: why
4: aren't they doing it?
13: But on else? this other hand, when you're someone else, then we can wait and stonewall and we could negotiate. And, you know, by the way, we've gotten them all in, but you really didn't. You do a search, you find more. Mm-hmm. It's just not fair. And the bottom line is we have to have a country, right, where the law equally applies to everyone, not just people who were former presidents, etc. You can't flout the system like that. And it just really... It's it's derogatory to the rule of law. What there has about, to be accountability.
2: What about the allies as well? I mean, the idea there are there are obvious yeah. enablers. It's not as if you've seen Donald Trump carrying a a, a banker's box someplace mm. anytime soon, recently. What about those in the orbit in the circle who would be assisting in doing this, including, by the way, lawyers whose job it is to tell the court this client has done all that you've asked and are unable to do that.
13: Yeah, I think there's two things, Laura. I think the first thing is when you have a difficult client, right, uh, that being Donald Trump, I think he directs his attorneys what to do and what not to do. And that's pretty shameful because attorneys, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. need to be directing you as to what's appropriate and not appropriate. But at the end of the day, you know, Laura, as attorneys, we're officers of the court. And if you can't comply or take that mantra of being an officer of the court, then you need to, if you are an aider, a better, a person who should know better, you should be held accountable. Too. So I say all of that circle, bring them in, find them in contempt.
2: I Se- saw that rhyme. I loved Se- it by the way. Is- Eater of better, <laughs> the ones who know better. Don't, <laughs> don't downplay <laughs> the Joey Jackson. Hold on. I, I Se- spelled Se- the courtroom. Here That's we
1: wonderful. go. I <laughs> see this is exactly what we were talking about. Of course, Joy makes a good point yep. that nobody's above the law yeah. except Donald Trump and his he team. It's been a year is. and a half. You said it would have been, you know, 60 days for the rest of us. So. And you can
7: you can feel the frustration in this Contempt, Right. Like we're so it's almost like they don't trust him. Right. Almost like they don't feel like they're getting all the things they want, that they're going to get all the things they want. And they're like, damn it, we're going to hold this guy in contempt. So something actually gets him to do what we ask because he
1: keeps getting around it
13: keeps doing what he wants yeah. to do. So like, isn't this federal
1: happens. judge going to do it? I mean, this federal judge, would this will this federal judge do it? Jerry? You know,
13: but the reality, Allison, it depends on what do it means. What are you going to do that has teeth, right. that has some real accountability? Give him a fine that his business will pay? It right. needs to be about personal accountability that will deter this activity in the future. So we'll see what the judge does.
2: We will see. And, of course, January 6th committee, Georgia, New York. I mean, there's a lot of different yes. people interested in that teeth you're talking about. Look, also, a new poll shows American unions at their highest approval rating in decades. And workers are pushing to unionize at big companies like Amazon, like Starbucks. So, what's behind the rise of unions, and will it change if a looming recession becomes the reality? We'll talk about it next.
1: For the first time in decades, employees at the New York Times staged a walkout. Mm. Today, more than 1,000 Times workers participated in a 24-hour strike. The strike comes after more than a year and a half of failed negotiations between management and the union representing staffers to forge a new contract.
2: And Really, it's part of a broader trend of unions and workers that are pushing for more after a year of historic inflation. But with many warning of this looming recession, will the balance of power between labor and and management shift. CNN political analyst Natasha Alford joins us, and Se Cup and Errol Lewis are also back. I mean, this idea of the shift, Natasha, in particular, and just the idea of what we're seeing, this is a time when we have a president who says he's the most pro-union president mm-hmm. that we've ever had. Yeah. Um, there has been the aversion of the rail strike. There was a lot of consequential information around that, but I wonder, from your perspective, what this time tells you about the power of workers and the power to unionize now?
14: Well, when you're bringing up the Biden um, response to the rail strike, there were actually uh, members of that union. So there are multiple unions who were a part of that conversation Four of the unions voted against, um, you know, what Biden was proposing because of paid sick leave Mm -hmm. being left out. And they felt so betrayed. Right. How do you say that we are essential to this country and to this economy and you don't even give us paid sick leave? But that is the reality, I think, for many industries in the pandemic, we saw. People were called essential workers, but they weren't being treated like they were essential. They weren't getting the benefits. They weren't getting the wages. And so workers are realizing their power. There was a time when unions were very strong in this country, uh, you know, and for different reasons, outsourcing, union busting, that changed. But workers are reclaiming their time, so to speak, reclaiming their power and saying, you need us. And when you flex that power, people have to respond.
1: It's interesting, Essie, because um, the opinion of, uh, unions has gone up in the past decade. So if we yep. look at, it was at its lowest point in 2009, only 48 <laughs> percent approved of labor unions. Today, it's at 71 mm-hmm. yep. percent. So what's that Huge. about?
7: And well, I, I will also just say, however, union membership is down and it's been declining for decades. But I think the pandemic was a reckoning for anyone who worked in any environment in every sector. We learned we could ask for more. Now, I'm a conservative, won't surprise you to learn I do not like unions. I was a member of that union that walked out of the New York Times. And so this isn't political for me, this is personal. I didn't like feeling like I was handcuffed to a group that could decide my pay, my hours, the way I was treated, if I had to walk out of my job or not. Because those contract negotiations happened all the time at the New York Times when I was there. I didn't like it. And so I think the idea of unions is very popular now and growing in popularity. But the reality is much tougher. There is union busting. It's harder to join a union. There are disadvantages to being in a union. And I think people
2: over decades have gotten to learn that. But who we identify as a union person now, I mean, that image is changing over time. I mean, the idea of individuals at Amazon, at Starbucks, the Microsoft, the face, Microsoft, the yeah. face of a union person, yeah. very different than the stereotypical, you know, creative Hollywood casting.
9: That's right. And what w- we have here in a lot of ways is you, what you could call a sort of a revolution of rising expectations. There are a lot of younger people. Um, who were part of Occupy Wall Street. You know, mm. that, that wasn't just some phenomenon, right? People sort of took that and there was a lot of activism in a lot of different jurisdictions around the country where they fought for and got paid sick leave, higher minimum wage, different kind of working hours. Uh, and what that has now led to is sort of a, and, and was intended to lead to, uh, sort of a higher level of expectations where people say, well, wh- what do you mean I can't take a day off because mm. my mom is sick or my kid is sick? Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to do something about this the same way we marched in the street for George Floyd, for Occupy Wall Street, for Black Lives Matter, or whatever it might have been, or against the war. And so, you know, what we now have is a very engaged, especially younger people, a very engaged populace that's insisting that these things come to the table. That's why you have 71% support, the mm-hmm. highest level since 1965. Mm-hmm. It's why you had, uh, I think, 600 uh, over 640 elections uh, that, that went pro-union earlier in the first half of this year alone. So, you know, there are people who are on the move. It's part of a political movement. Mm-hmm. It's part of an economic movement. They have the wind at their backs. And, you know, I hope they get everything that they deserve.
14: Yeah, if yeah. you thought the millennials were demanding, <laughs> Gen Z's not playing around. But generational difference is real about what they expect in the workplace.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And and on the mm. flip side of what you were saying, Essie, mm. you, you didn't like to be beholden to a union that was dictating, you know, what your salary was and what your hours were. But a lot of people don't like to be beholden to an employer right. who's sure. dictating that without the benefit of I underst- somebody on their side. Absolutely, you know? I understand the function
7: yeah. of a union and the upside of a union. But there is... There is also downside. I mean, money is misspent. I can't believe, like, the head of the American Teachers Union made nearly half a million dollars in a year. That is not sticking up for the little guy, for the worker. And I think the politicization of everything, but also labor, has um, painted an image of unions that is not all that kind. And some of it is rooted in reality. Some of it is political and politics, but some of it is true. And so there's some skepticism around how much a
14: union can accomplish.
2: How is that viewed to you, Natasha?
14: Well, I think to your point about the reality of it, you know, we saw Chris Smalls and Amazon and there was this like inspirational moment, right? You see the the speeches on social media, but then you heard about some of the division and not everybody being on board. And when you took that vote to Albany with Amazon, you actually didn't get people who voted for the union because they felt that there was inexperience in the organizing. Whether or not that's true, difference of opinion. But if you can't get people to believe that you know actually how to get the employer to the table, they're going to choose self-preservation.
1: Good point. Guys, thank you very much. Great conversation. All right, up next, we have to talk about this. There is a development nearly Mm -hmm. a month after those four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death. There is no suspect yet, no murder weapon. However, there is a car and police need your help. Nearly one month after four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death at an off-campus house, police now say they're searching for a white car that was spotted near the crime scene. Investigators say information about the vehicle came from thousands of tips that they've received. We're back with Natasha Alford. Joey Jackson, and Errol Lewis. Joey, it's about time. I mean, it's about time. It's been a month. Usually when there's a case like this, I find, in having reported on hundreds of these, that a car is one of the first things they put out to the public. That that somebody has spotted at 3 in the morning, at the time of the crime, a car that wasn't familiar in the neighborhood.
13: Yeah, I I don't disagree with that at all, uh, Allison. And particularly when you have a college community like this that's really, uh, you know, unraveled. People unnerved by this. A lot of uh, college students... In fact, you know, either not to come back or to do virtually just very traumatic. And so in terms of the investigation, you would think certainly I'm glad they've gotten to the stage now. But in terms of expediting it and ensuring, right, that you're calming the community, you're knowing and getting the confidence of the community to the extent that you're investigating properly. It certainly should have been a development that occurred earlier. Uh, But these cases are tough. Uh, I'm hoping that the forensic evidence and that type thing might lead to other clues so that they can bring forth accountability. But the fact, Allison, that you don't have uh, a weapon at this point and a suspect at this point is certainly troubling.
2: And what's so scary, too, about the I mean, imagine being a student on this campus um, in a world where we already have danger on campuses between shootings and violence. You've now got the idea of this level of violence happening. And, Natasha, you think about it. The community is being asked to help. But there is a risk in having the over-involvement. Every lead must now be pursued. And does that slow? I wonder the discussion, the investigation. What is your take on how that interaction is impacting everything? I imagine it creates
14: a bit of noise, right? Mm-hmm. Every single lead is time on the clock, um, and we live in this this social media era where more and more people are slews. They're internet slews. They're investigators, and in the case of Gabby Petito, that actually worked out. Um, but I think that's the exception to the rule. I'm not sure that. Uh, The many, many different um, online groups and conversations that are happening actually help the trained officials to do their jobs. Um, But I I do agree with this idea that the PTSD, right, of constantly being exposed to violence and murder um, and and being asked to function as a student, uh, even for our K through 12 students who are going to school, it's a lot. And, and, and I worry about sort of the state of constantly being exposed to that level of fear.
1: Here's something else that concerns me, Errol, about the investigation. The the um, pictures that they've put out of this white car that they're looking for, it's a 2011 through 2013 Hyundai Electra, uh, Elantra. Here it is. These are stock photos that they put out. So in right. other words, they're not even getting it from a surveillance camera somewhere. Right. So this is just from a tip. And I'm I thought that in this day and age in which we live, that there were surveillance cameras everywhere, but maybe not Moscow, Idaho. Yeah, maybe
9: not. Yes. It's, it sounds like um, this is a little bit of a of, of a of a guess by the authorities to try and scare up more information. I mean, as as tough of the case as this appears to be, and as little help as we may think we're giving by talking about it, uh, all of that noise actually does. Uh, help the investigators, frankly, keep the resources and and, and keep their supervisors on point. It holds accountable the local department. It holds accountable the university. It makes clear that this isn't going to just go away where you just sort of dwindle uh, the resources, dwindle the manpower, and then hope it all goes away over the Christmas break or over the summer break. We've got to keep talking about it. We've got to do whatever we can. It's really discouraging, though, that it seems like there's a real lack of of a lot of the basics, including a weapon, a suspect, or or even a photo of a a car. But I do
1: know the power of television, just what you're talking about. I worked at America's Most Wanted for five years, Mm -hmm. and every Friday night, I would see what hundreds of thousands of eyeballs would do. And by God, we would capture somebody. Every Friday night, when the cases had gone cold, when the FBI couldn't find somebody because it's everybody watching, and they say, I know that guy, I know that car, they will, if this is the car connected, they will find this person. But I, like you said, I just worry that it's a guess from the thousands of leads that they say have come in.
13: Yeah, you know, Alison, to your point, that's why in in the context of politics, they call the media the fourth estate, right? When you look at crime, certainly, you know, you could make that analogy that people who are looking, evaluating the eyeballs, who are certainly attentive to it, uh, might call in tips as we look at the number there, that might be significant, they may be helpful, they may calm the community, and more importantly, they may bring someone to justice. And
2: you may not know what you've seen. You may not know Mm -hmm. what you know, Mm -hmm. right?
14: I would just say the flip side, the positive of so many social media interactions is for cases like Shankwella Robinson, right, who... Was overlooked. There were no charges at first. That's this right. this young woman who went to Mexico with friends, but because of the 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 reality that you know women of color, black women, uh, black youth are overlooked when they go missing or when they're exploited or when something happens, that's where internet support and online contributions actually did help out. So. I don't think there was any doubt that this case would be paid attention to. But yes, I do think there are times when it does make a difference.
2: I certainly hope so. I mean, these four people have been killed, seems to be brutally murdered in a home and there's no suspects on a college campus. I can't imagine what this is like for the families. Well, we had the number up there as well earlier, too. Please, if you've seen anything, please do what you can to help. Up next, a very personal story that tells you a lot about health care in this country. The shocking statistic... Black women in this country are nearly three times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes. A former CNN colleague is so concerned about that, she's making a major move to protect herself and her baby. And she joins us next. Tonight, a personal story that hits close to home for far too many. A former colleague, Aisha Sese is pregnant and just moved to New York to give birth. Now, one of her reasons, well, because she's a black woman. And so, black women are nearly three times more likely to be impacted. Yeah, we'll talk about all those statistics.
1: Um, they die in pregnancy more than white women. Uh, so former CNN anchor and reporter, as, as we said, Aisha Sese is here to discuss Aisha... You look fantastic.
5: <laughs> you, how do Thank you feel? You. Feeling remarkably well, apart from the waddling and trying how to How many my balance. weeks pregnant are you? Now i seven months. Wow. So, so it's, it's close at hand, and I'm trying to make the mental adjustment. You look fantastic. So Thank explain,
1: you. I mean, you're, you just moved back to New York. On Friday. On Friday, oh. um, because you thought that the medical care would be better here.
5: So to be clear, I started my pregnancy journey in New York. I was working with a fertility clinic in New York. I got pregnant here and I started my OB care here. I had already planned to go back to LA because my mom's unwell. And the the, the the issue I'd been wrestling with while I was in LA was, should I come back to be with my black OB, who I felt very safe with? When I explained it to my white friends in LA, they sort of made me feel like I was crazy as if doctors are interchangeable, you know, care is the same. And a lot of them said, just stay in LA and have this baby. Many healthy babies are born in LA. But the question is, it's not really about the outcome per se, which is obviously critical. It's the experience. And for me, what happened a few weeks ago is that I I had to meet with another doctor who reviewed some test results, which weren't to her liking. And what I experienced was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Um, I sat in this examination room and within seconds, this woman was trying to push on me a highly risky diagnostic test. Mm. She was talking about terminating my baby. Mm. And what struck me in that moment was how quickly she was willing to discard my, you know, my life or, and the life of my baby. And I turned up at my OB, who's here in, in New York, just a plural, Antoine, sobbing my eyes out. He let me cry. He looked at the data and he saw something completely different. He saw something completely different. And he said, I will make sure that you have a healthy baby. I mm. will care for you. And I understood the data in that moment where black women say they don't feel heard, seen or valued by the medical establishment far too many times. What Actually, I can, experience. I, mean, I can tell you, I, I can wholeheartedly
2: relate. I remember in my first pregnancy having a doctor be so callous with a misdiagnosis to tell me at the end, and I was in a courtroom, I was in a trial, and took the phone call in the hallway, and he said, she said, don't worry, you, you can still terminate. <laughs> and it was such a moment of just, I couldn't believe it, and just the expectation that maybe she thought, as a black woman we should not be treated delicately or that we did not have the need for bedside manner. And I never forgot that experience.
5: Yes, and I was so shaken, I cried for days. And that was the moment I decided that I had to come back to, to New York. I had to come back to a doctor who I felt saw my full humanity. Mm. He saw the humanity of myself and my child and who was as invested as he could be. We know that there are many drivers for the disparities that we're seeing in, in, in maternal mortality rates for black women. But you know, even when they account for income, education, access to healthcare, this structural and systemic racism and implicit bias is real. And I will also say one more thing. My fertility doctor, an amazing woman, Stephanie Thompson um, at IRMS said to me when she was, di- when she was um, letting me go, when she was discharging me, she said, whatever I, whatever I can say to you, whatever piece of advice I ask you to take is come back and let this man deliver your baby. She said, when we put on our coats, we do not lose our bias. Mm. And this was a doctor telling me this important fact. And I heard it, but maybe I didn't receive it until I had my experience.
1: It's incredible to hear about your experience because, again, you were in LA, major metropolitan area. You, uh, you know, are a CNN we're a CNN anchor. So, in other words, means. you have the means. Right. You
5: have the uh, obviously uh, resources. And that you had that experience. And I should say, and I should correct you, that the, the experience, the, the traumatic experience was actually here in New York. So it's not a geographic right. thing, right? Because we know, because what I was wrestling with was should I have Dr. Antoine discharge me to get new care in LA? After the experience in New York, so I was coming back and forth for checks. After the experience here, I just decided I would stay with him. I wouldn't seek new care anywhere else. But again, even within New York, look at the difference in in, in, in in the way I was treated. And now you also understand why some of the data says black women sometimes will stop going to appointments when they have a bad experience mm-hmm. with their doctor because they lose trust. And even I am still fearful, right, even with this great doctor, because he's not the only one who will be caring for me when I go into labor. Mm-hmm. What's the answer? You know, I think, you know, the the momnibus bill that... Um, that Representative Underwood is is trying to get through Congress that is looking at, first of all, I would say one of the key things is to have more people of colour involved in the medical system, in caring for pregnant women, who can take in the full cultural specifics of, of who we are. I think that is one of the key things. And then just... Dealing with some of these structural barriers, where in some cases, low socioeconomic um, women who can't get access to quality, preventative, um, maternal care. I think there are many things. It's, it's, it's a multi layered problem. But what I won't shy away from saying is the structural systemic racism and implicit bias is real. Yeah.
1: And also okay. speaking about it out you know publicly Absolutely. and freely, which we really appreciate. You've
2: okay. got to be your champion. Thank you for being that for others as well. And you really can't provide the dignity of care unless the doctor has the integrity to care. That's right. As well.
5: So I'm and considering your names for the baby. Thank so you. you know.
2: Excellent. I That's mean Laura
5: spelled L A U
2: R A. Allison
1: spelled a little strangely, but we'll get
14: to
2: that. <laughs> we'll get to <laughs> it. Actually,
1: great to see
14: you.
5: Thank you.
2: Everyone, thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues.